You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 107, George Washington, Part 2. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts... Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, in the last episode, we talked about George Washington, the man, the myth, the legend, and basically what he kind of accomplished in his early life up until the American Revolution. So why don't we go ahead and pick it up here with everything he did from the American Revolution on? Yeah, it gets pretty exciting from this point. I mean, if you consider blood and warfare and, you know, that kind of stuff exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of good movies about it, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Washington, uh, he's a leader. We've talked about his military service. We've talked about his experience. He is an aristocrat at the time. But basically, 1767 comes around, and he starts taking a bunch of political stances. He's like, hey, uh, Parliament. Nah, and Parliament's like, well, yeah, huh? We're gonna en- enact the Stamp Act, <laughs> and uh, we're not gonna ask anybody from the colonies about it. So, whatever. Yeah, that doesn't go over too well. And for some reason, when you said Parliament, uh-huh. I just can't help think about National Lampoon's yeah. European Vacation. That's tough. I understand. So we all know about the Stamp Act, right? We've talked about that before, and the Townshend Acts. But in May of 1769, Washington introduces a proposal, which was drafted by his friend George Mason. We've heard of him, right? Uh-huh, yeah. And they call He for, created the Mason jar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I made that up. But well, Washington okay. created the Washington apple. Right, that's true. So this is not true, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to leave a comment, <laughs> go ahead. So they call for Virginia to boycott English goods until the acts were repealed. And Parliament says, okay, we repeal the Townshend Acts. Why not? And Washington said, hang on a second. Just a few years later, in 1774, (laughs) the Intolerable Acts are enacted. And Washington is like, "Uh, this is an invasion of our rights and privileges. Yeah, he actually tells his friend Brian Fairfax, I think the Parliament of Great Britain has no more right to put their hands in my pocket without my consent, then I have to put my hands into yours for money. And, you know, basically he's against tyranny. He's kind of the first anarchist. Not really. Uh, I made that part up too. But he's like the first American anarchist, even though it's not America yet. And in July of 1774, he actually chairs a meeting and the Fairfax Resolves were adopted, which basically says, okay, we're going to have a Continental Congress. We're going to go to the first Virginia Convention 
and I'm going to be a delegate to the First Continental Congress. He planned all that out whenever they had that meeting, just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. So we all know that there's some skirmishes. There's some battles, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. There's the battles of Lexington and Concord. Concord, Concord, depending on where you're from. Right. We'll say Concord Mm -hmm. because it's New England. Yeah. So it's near Boston. And in April of 1775, the colonies, they go to war. And Washington appears at the Second Continental Congress in a military uniform. Uh Uh-oh. So you can imagine he was kind of chilling there for a while, being an aristocrat, and he's all ready. So he has all the prestige. He has military experience. You know, he's charismatic, and he's a leader. So Virginia is the largest colony, and the fighting is breaking out in New England. They're like, Hey, Virginia, you're big. We need you. (laughs) So uh, Washington is selected as the commander. Yeah, he really didn't seek out the commander uh, position, but, well, he he was the man for it. Like, it was prepared for him. And Congress creates the Continental Army, and Washington is appointed as full general and commander in chief. So, yay, Washington, for the 800th time. Uh, the British, um, they pretty much say Washington and his army are in big trouble. The uh, the American rebels, they're traitors. The American rebels, if they go to force, they're going to get all of their properties taken away from them. They're going to be executed if they are a leader of the movement. And um, guess what? We're serious about this. Yeah, we're going to hang you. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting just to backtrack a bit from the last episode when we talked about how Washington, sure, he was in the British Army, kind of, but then he was more loyal to Virginia and praising Virginians and the Virginia militia and so on over anything that the Redcoats would have played in his life or rented space in his brain yeah he was a loyal virginian and keep in mind the colonies at this time were very loyal to their particular colony so it's a pretty big deal that new england would summon the help of virginia and that's precisely what they did so i, I like to think that this is the beginning of the united states even yeah. though a declaration hadn't been written up at that point i feel like if i was the british and like I mean, they had to have depended on George Washington before this. They did. Yeah. If, like, the guy we depend on says, I don't like you anymore, I feel like I'd take that pretty seriously. Like, oh, maybe we should listen to him for a minute. But instead, they were just like, nah, we're going to take all your stuff, man. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of an all or nothing thing. Yeah. And you think about the arrogance, at least looking back as Americans, because let's face it, we're biased. If we were from Canada or something, we may not agree. Right. But... It just makes sense that we would try to take care of these people and keep them loyal to the crown, not tax them and, and so on. But anyway, Washington uh, assumes the role as commander-in-chief, and he is providing leadership militarily as well as legislatively. And um, he loses a lot of his battles. Yeah. But he never surrenders. Yeah, and he's in charge of not only actually leading the army, but also organizing it and training it and everything else. It's like when you're a volunteer, you get to do everything mm-hmm. there possibly can be. And uh, that's him. So the 
the the Congress basically says like, hey, we're going to give you all this stuff, and we're going to make sure that uh, you can you can fight, and then they don't because they just don't have it. And Washington's like, listen, these soldiers were promised lots of good stuff. Give it to them. So anyway, Congress's first attempt at running the the war was with a committee known as the Board of War and Ordnance, and it was succeeded by the Board of War, which essentially includes members of the military. And it's kind of like Congress in some sense, and in fact, they actually sometimes made decisions without Washington's input, but no one really liked it. And Washington is one of the first strong opponents of this so like okay he's the commander-in-chief you put him in charge you're doing stuff he disagrees with maybe you should listen to him right so thankfully washington being the great leader that he is finds capable officers and we've heard some of these names uh, general nathaniel green uh, general daniel morgan and they all had served with Washington in the French and Indian War. Mm -hmm. Um, You've heard of Colonel Henry Knox. Uh, He became the chief of artillery, as well as our friend Colonel Alexander Hamilton, who served as the chief of staff. The Wizard of Oz is all over the place. I know, he is. So the American officers never really couldn't stand up at all to the craftiness of the British. I mean, the British are... It's the greatest army in the yeah, world, right? Exactly. But somehow <laughs> they pull it off. Uh, they have some victories in Boston back in 76, Saratoga, and we all know about Yorktown. Of course. And um, boy, they, I mean, Morgan's tearing it up. And um, Washington, Yorktown, need we say more? Right. They win. Hey, so not only did Washington lead the army, he organized the army, he trained the army, he did everything (laughs) there was for the army, but Washington in and of himself was like the embodiment of resistance, the Mm -hmm. embodiment of the rebellion. He is the guy that you look to to say, I want to be like him when it comes to being an anarchist. And that's essential. I mean, they weren't anarchists, but essentially they were saying, we are overthrowing our government. Mm-hmm. And he is the representative of the revolution. So he really wants to maintain this army in the field at all times. And he is going to be with it at all times. He is not going to go back and be a bureaucrat. He wants to be a military man. And it works. They just they have all sorts of uh, presence in the field. He has all sorts of presence in the field. Like Jason mentioned, he loses a lot of his battles and... There's just really no getting around that. He's just simply a man, but he's kind of elevated by the people as, even at that time, a legend. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because, I mean, you can imagine what the British newspapers were saying about (laughs) the Americans, but they routinely praised Washington's character as a person and his military um, commanding abilities. And the articles that they would write would say, okay, he's our enemy, he's a bad guy, but I think he's going to destroy our empire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he might even go capture some of the other islands and stuff we have. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so 
we're going to go ahead and skip over some of the different battles and different things and whatnot. We know we skip right to Yorktown here, and there are about 5,000 French troops led by Rochambeau, and they're going to come in and aid in the war effort. And uh, initially, Washington had actually hoped to bring the fight to New York and end it there. And, well, it didn't happen that way. Washington sees the advantage that's created by uh, moving everyone to towards Clinton in New York and then head south for Virginia. And so Washington's Continental Army, $20,000 in French gold in hand, deliver the final blow to the British in 1781. And, of course, the French had a ton to do with this victory. Yeah, it's so interesting about the relationship that we had with France, the Patriots had with France. So, hey, France, thanks. Um, On October 19th, 1781. That's just in case no one from, like, in case the United States never officially told you thank you, we are being the ambassadors. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Merci. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) yeah, back to October 19th, 1781, major fighting in North America ends. Cornwallis does not appear at the surrender ceremony. He sends General Charles O'Hara as his proxy, and Washington is like, okay, I'm going to assign my role to another guy too. Benjamin Lincoln, (laughs) you got it. So the British surrender at Yorktown, but this isn't still the end of it. I mean, the British still have 26,000 troops occupying New York, Charleston, and Savannah. They still have just a powerful naval fleet out there. The French leave. The Americans are on their own by the time 1782 and 83 uh, roll around. We're out of money. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we covered this a little bit in some of the early episodes of Election College, just how um, the British would impress our guys, our sailors, and so on, as if you don't know what impressment means. Right. But you just need to listen to some of the earlier episodes. But right. there's still a lot of mm, British influence in North America. Yeah. But, hey, we're our own country, right? That's right. Yeah. And as we're working through that, a lot of the debts and stuff are getting settled. And one in particular that we want to point out was that George Washington later uh, later in his life or later in those years submitted this account of all the expenses that he had personally occurred and or incurred and that he had uh, put forward out of his own pocket over the eight years of conflict he participated in. And it was only, oh, about $450,000. And, you know, he's got detailed out like small items, um, large items, different things that were uh, incurred from Martha's visits to his headquarters. He's got requests for compensation during the war. And, you know, he didn't take any of that money during the war so that his soldiers could eat and have warm clothing. And, uh, yeah, so it just shows you that, like, he submitted this $450,000 receipt. (laughs) But before that, he was like, yeah, they just need the money. So it's going to happen. And this is what I believe in. This is what I want to fight for. He was not a man who was, like, counting every nickel and dime at 
the moment that it happened. <laughs> just later on. Just later on. He's the master of the expense report. Can you imagine <laughs> what that thing looked oh, like? Oh man, they you know that they were all in like the the chambers rolling out this big scroll that George Washington brought in. <laughs> Dude, like one piece of parchment limit. Sorry. <laughs> so he goes back to Mount Vernon, right? And how do you tell him no? Like, you can't be like, well, we don't approve these 10 items here because... And he's like, listen, I'm George Washington. Yeah. It's like, you're free, dude. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> so he's he's there in Mount Vernon taking it easy. And uh, in 1784, he's like... I want to go check out some of my land. So he goes to Western PA and uh, he's like, okay, yeah, there we go. And uh, nice, nice town. Washington, yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. How you doing? Hey, um, so George Washington's retired basically, right? I mean, that's kind of the end of things for him. Sure. Yeah. He's just hanging out. Yeah. Um, well, there is this one thing. We're going to have this constitutional convention and uh, they convinced George Washington to go to Philadelphia in 1787 as the delegate from Virginia. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. But please, please don't make me a leader. I just want to be yeah. there, give some good comments, etc." And they're like, you're the president. <laughs> you're <laughs> the like, man. Dang it. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, who's going to measure up? To Washington, right? I know. Maybe Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. No, he's no, getting, he's not quite he's a leader, getting, and he's getting kind of old. He is getting old, yeah. So, yeah. for some reason, that song "It Must Be Nice," yeah. <laughs> it must be nice. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Washington tells Hamilton, "I almost despair of seeing a favorable issue to the proceedings of our convention." And do therefore repent having had any agency in the business. <laughs> but you're in charge. You're the man. Hey, we need to elect a president. Yeah. With this whole new constitution and everything. So guess what? Who do you think it's going to be? Well, who's going to run against George Washington? <laughs> yeah. And back in the day, we've talked about this at length, ad nauseum, you could even say. Uh, the, the practice was like, you're a servant, you're not a politician. Mm -hmm. So it was not okay for him to like seek the office. He didn't even really want the office that much, but the electoral college unanimously elects him as the first president. And he's like the only guy who's ever gotten all the electoral votes. Yeah. So, uh, we've talked about John Adams, his rotundity. Actually, we're going to talk about him quite a bit more yeah. here in another episode. But Washington is inaugurated. He takes the oath of office in New York City, and uh, he gets paid $25,000 a year. Yeah, and we talked about how much George Washington got paid back in the episodes about the election of George Washington. And a lot of this information is rehashed, but we had a lot of requests to do it more in depth so we are but anyway he uh he gets a lot of money to be the president and he tries to refuse it and they won't let him they're like hey if you refuse it people will think that unless you already have money you can't be the president unless you can front the military four hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> during an eight-year period of time you can't be the president so uh they're like hey let's try to call him um his majesty or all these other fancy names and he just likes the term mr president yeah oh shucks 
I know. I'm Mr. President. And I mentioned this way back when on the one of the first election college podcasts, but uh, we are, Ben and I usually broadcast in separate locations, but we're actually together. Uh-huh. And we are just a few blocks away from Cincinnati, Ohio. It's kind of interesting because Cincinnati, in case you didn't know that, is actually named kind of after George Washington. Right. And this story really exemplifies Washington, in my estimation. And the reason being is because Cincinnatus was a military leader. And the people of Rome were like, hey, you need to become the emperor. And Cincinnatus was like, no, I just want to hang out. I just want to chill. And he goes back and becomes a farmer again and is out of the limelight. Well, Washington was very much like that. Washington, he already had done his deal. He wanted to go back to Mount Vernon and hang out. And when he was pushed into the role of president, he didn't just stay there. He said, I'm going to serve this term, I'm going to serve another term, and then I'm going to retire. So just a little side note, but I think that really exemplifies the character of Washington that, hey, I don't need your political parties. I don't need to go out and campaign to be president. I'm just going to lead and I am your humble servant. That's right. And that can be even more exemplified by the fact that Washington kind of neglected the idea of parties and party lines. He thought that everyone should work together for the good of the country and not have any kind of biases, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. brought into things. Now, of course, we know that's not realistic, and human nature is going to dictate that people take sides, but this is kind of the idea that he promoted. And so it starts out that he decided, no, we're not going to undermine republicanism. He gets a bunch of advisors, and they pretty much immediately form two different factions. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And... uh, uh, we've talked uh, in part about the, the different domestic issues that arose. The Residence Act of 1790, which was uh, all about Hamilton's plan to establish the National Bank and the National Credit. We've talked about the Revenue Act as well. Um, we've talked about different panics that happened and even the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, so we're going to just kind of lightly skip over those things but you can know that Washington had his hands full. We've not only we've got a brand new country and we've got a brand new presidency. We've got like a, a clean slate and they're all of a sudden like, "Hey, um left versus right." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating how that shift did take place because after Washington and we'll get into this in the next episode, but in previous episodes, we have talked about that, you know, hey, you sure do act a lot like you're from France, or hey, you sure do act like you're from England. And Washington, let's be frank, he kind of ticked off both the French at some point, and especially the English at other points. He was an American. Yeah. All in all, that's what he was. Well, so not only were there some uh, domestic affairs he had to deal with, he also had to deal with foreign affairs. And for the most part, Washington didn't want to deal with any foreign <laughs> affairs. Yeah. He thought we should stick to our own thing. And, you know, there's a lot of people who still say that. So the uh, French Revolutionary Wars break out and Great Britain and France are 
man, it is like wildfire mm-hmm. all across Europe. And Washington's like, we're neutral. Sorry. Yeah. He called them entangling alliances. Yeah. Anything having to do with foreign relations. Yep. So he's president and uh, he's like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1797, he returns to Mount Vernon. He's like, (sighs) (laughs) he uh, goes back after he gives his um, his farewell address, which was actually helped uh, to be written by Alexander Hamilton, as we've discussed before. And yeah, he goes back to Mount Vernon. He devotes a lot of time to his plantations and. Other types of business that he has, I think it was even uh, after this point where he had a distillery that, yeah, he produced some spirits later on, and he really, as much land as he has and as much operations as he has, it's not really all that profitable for him. I mean, like, he, he doesn't need it to be. They don't yield a lot of income because there's Indians and squatters and they're not going to pay him and he's not going to chase them out. Yeah. This powerful military man who was the president for eight years decides, eh, whatever. Yeah. So there he is. He's chilling. And, uh, well, <laughs> guess what? Uh-oh. We've got some trouble on the international front. Yeah. Relations with France, they're bad. And John Adams, he's like, hey, George. Hey, buddy. Um, you're going to be the lieutenant general and commander in chief of the armies, um, just in case we go to war with France. Yeah, just in case, though, that we're not going to. And Washington is like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, until his death. So it was like 17 months. He is in charge of a provisional army yeah. that could have gone to war with France. And speaking of his death on December 12th in 1799, he goes out on his plantation to Mount Vernon and he's on horseback. It's snowing, it's hailing, it's freezing rain. And later that night, he goes in and eats dinner without changing out of his wet clothes. So the next day, he wakes up, he's got a sore throat, he can't really talk all that well. And he's like, well, you know what would probably do well for this? I should go out in the snow and um, start you know, choosing the trees that I want to take down. Mm-hmm. So why not? Why not go ahead out in the snow? It's a good idea. Yeah. Well, the next day he wakes up and pretty much can't breathe or swallow or anything. And they try all sorts of different stuff. And it just frankly doesn't work. Yeah. Get this, Ben. He liked... The idea of bloodletting. Can you yeah, believe that? I know. There's a great episode of Sawbones, the show Sawbones, mm-hmm. about um, bloodletting. It's really good. So if you don't know what that is, go listen to it. If you have a wizard in your stomach or <laughs> a bad case of the humors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in all seriousness, um, he orders his estate overseer, Alban Rollins, to remove a half pint of his blood. And, um, well, it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, by the time that the different physicians get done with him, over half of his blood has been removed from his body, and that is not good for you, obviously. And so they decide to do an emergency tracheotomy, which 
isn't really uh, a well-known practice at that time, and it potentially could have saved his life. But a couple other of the doctors disapproved, and of course they had to do things together, so uh, it didn't happen. And Washington died at his home around 10 o'clock on Saturday, December 14th, just two days after that initial uh, bout out in the snow, hail, and freezing rain, and he's aged 67. And um, in Washington's journal, it's recorded that his last words, and this is someone else wrote this in there, uh, that his last words were, "'Tis well." Yeah. So uh, he dies, and people all over the world mourn his passing, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting, Ben. I I didn't realize this, but Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, yeah, over in France, uh-huh. he orders ten days of mourning uh, throughout France. It's pretty incredible. So uh, Martha uh, burns the correspondence that they had, and only five letters between them have survived. And those are two letters from Martha to George, and three from him to Martha. Crazy. So Washington is buried at Mount Vernon. Congress later passes a joint resolution to make this marble monument and put it uh, in the center section of the Capitol, which, remember at the time, is still under construction. And uh, Martha supports this. And they actually pass a bill for $200,000 to build the mausoleum, and it's going to be a pyramid with a square base, yada, yada, yada. And they basically, um, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, Southern representatives and different senators say, we don't like this idea. We don't like this money being spent. And they cast it down because, well, we think it's best if Washington is at Mount Vernon. So after the War of 1812, and it actually happened in 1814 when Uh the British burned Washington, they were reconstructing the Capitol building. Right. And they were like, hey, this is a great idea. Let's put a crypt in there for Washington. Mm -hmm. But that never happened, again, because the Southerners were like, no, (laughs) we don't want to do that. Uh, Our venerated Washington needs to stay in his native state of Virginia, which is like, what, three miles away. Yeah, it's just (laughs) barely out of of D.C., but uh, whatever. It's not called D.C. at the time, I suppose. But Uh, So yeah, he is buried at Mount Vernon in 1837. They actually construct a new tomb. And uh, after the ceremony, they take the inner vault door, they lock it, and they throw the key into the Potomac. Yeah. And Gollum got it. Oh, that's what happened to it. it. I had been wondering that for the last several years. (laughs) That's it. That's... That's the biography, in short, of course, of George Washington, and uh, a little bit about Martha Washington and the early founding of the United States. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff we could go into, and hey, maybe someday we will, Um, but here are your two episodes, a little more in-depth about George Washington. Yeah, I do feel just that it is necessary for us to mention in brief about his views on slavery, because they are... Uh, varied and you know for us here in the 21st century it it just doesn't make sense why would you have slaves or anything like that Uh, he said that he opposed slavery as an institution but viewed it as economically unsound and morally indefensible yeah um there's a character flaw yeah i think so for sure 
And he never really, I mean, he says he dislikes slavery, but he never challenges slavery. And he probably wants to avoid controversy, which is understandable. But he did pass the Slave Trade Act of 1794, which basically limits the involvement of the United States in the Atlantic slave trade. But he still owns slaves, and he actually inherits 10 slaves when he's 10 years old. I'm sorry, 11 years old, he gets 10 slaves. And then once he gets married to Martha, he has 36 slaves. And then Martha brings in 85 slaves. And in 1774, he has taxes on 135 slaves. So, like, the guy has a lot of... I mean, there's even a count of when they were in um, Philadelphia, there was a law passed by Pennsylvania that if you had a slave in Pennsylvania... For more than six months, they were then freed, so they would rotate out their slaves every six months from state to state. So, like, yeah, this is a major character flaw. He definitely saw it as a as a bad thing, and yet he still did it. And I think we can all say we do that kind of thing. But it's interesting, and I think this is a this is a common thread amongst many of our founding fathers that they said slavery is deplorable, and yet they had slaves. Yeah, I don't know how you justify it, but they did. So sorry to end on that note. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the point, but it is the point at the same time. Yeah. So we would love to hear your feedback about Washington or any of the other topics that we have addressed during the podcast. Feel free to interact with us over on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Election College. And of course, take that 90 seconds and head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And even more helpful than that is... Hey, tell a friend. It's kind of nice to talk about history in the midst of this crazy political season. That's right. Hey, and if you really, really, really want to help us out and you want to know more about Washington as well, Ron Chernow, the master biographer, has a book called Washington, A Life. And you can get it on Amazon by going to electioncollege.com slash Amazon. And you can also get it on Audible by going to electioncollege.com slash Audible and then searching for Washington a life. And uh, if you buy either of those things with our links, those would really help us out, as well as anything else you buy on Amazon using electioncollege.com slash Amazon. We'll see you next time. All right, thanks.